Hey, this is Marx, and you're listening to Into This. In this podcast, I have conversations with people working in the visual arts, and we talk about their influences, their lives, and their careers. My guest today is artist David Elliott. David Elliott is a staple of the Canadian community of painters. He has been associated with the late 70s and early 80s return to figuration. David was born in Niagara-on-the-Lake and grew up in several towns in Ontario. In this interview, he shares a story that he calls the Eureka moment, when he discovered a painting in the London Library and everything started from there. But I won't spoil the story. I will allow you to listen it from David himself. That's coming in a minute. David moved to Montreal to pursue his bachelor's and master's degrees at Concordia University, where he also was part of the faculty until he retired recently. Throughout this interview, he describes his work, and look, a professor will forever be a professor. So he places his work around many historical references, including the music of the moment. Um, in this case, it was the album from the Beatles, Sgt. Peppers. Right? So he was talking about making references and parallels between the collage that exists within that album, Sgt. Peppers. So it's a different um, pieces of music being brought together and the work that he was looking into in terms of the visual arts. And he also shared a long list of visual artists, both Canadian and international, that played an important role in his artistic development. His work is in a lot of private and public collections around Canada. And one specific show I wanted to talk about with him was a big retrospective he had in Mexico City in the 90s. So we talk about that show and about the impact that that show had in his career. Look, I'm, I'm really happy to be able to bring this conversation with David Elliott to you. It's one of those that is packed with great insights and information specifically that artists may not want to miss. Okay, so I'll, I'll tell you more about how I prepare usually for this interview. So if there's some material, some, you know, interviews or reviews or anything else that I can find about the artist or the person that I'm going to talk to, that's usually what I review, but as well as I go by what the community normally say about them as well. And I think that's very valuable. So in this case, um, besides all of those available materials, I also have the perspective from a couple of my friends who were uh, David's students. So they couldn't really say more beautiful things about David being their professor than what they did. They had all the best accolades for David as a professor and in general as an artist, right? So um, I think this interview specifically was like a, an art history class a little bit, but with a lot of context um, because we talk about his own work. He shared with me that uh, since a couple of years back, he hasn't been able to paint because when he was young, he, he was diagnosed with polio and that really prevented him in the recent past to continue with his painting practice. So despite that, he continued to make the art the way that he has been doing it for a long time, except that he is not taking the last step of his usual practice, which usually was painting, right? So um, because of the way that I go about preparing for the interview and as well preparing the guest for the interview, which uh, I do share some topics of conversations and, and some questions uh, previous to, to meeting them. 
just so that nothing that is being asked is going to be a surprise. And also, you know, that's I think that's a good way to create some um, a comfortable environment for the guest as well. Obviously, some things are random and some conversation topics just come in the in the moment and we roll with it. And, and that's probably most of it. But um, at the beginning of this conversation, you'll hear when when David tells me that a lot of the content that I share with him talks about his paintings and about his past and, and that he didn't want to do that. And I totally see that. And I appreciate it. He telling me that we should probably center more in the present. And we definitely try to do that. Um, obviously, with all of his context and all of his um, years um, being active in the community, you know, there's a lot to unpack from his influences and, and the beginning of his work, uh, which is a so is, is such an interesting story when he was growing up in London, Ontario. Um, so we'll, we'll get into that in this interview. So as I said, this is definitely one of those episodes that will be I I will cherish and I will probably listen to it many times because again it's, it's some sort of a masterclass on pop art and the history of it and where does it fit in the context of music and the visual arts back in the 60s and the 70s and, and that's fascinating. It's fascinating because it's not it doesn't really stop at the theory. We're talking about this in the context of a person living through it um, and bringing it up as a way to make sense of their own work. So it's fantastic. I, I really enjoyed it. So let's get right into it. This is artist, professor, and Montreal icon David Elliott and me talking. Thanks for listening. And I think we are good. All right. So how are you? I'm okay. How are you doing? Yeah, pretty good, you know. Just uh, really anxiously waiting for the lockdown in Toronto to be lifted. And I think it's happening soon. So uh, okay, okay, that's good. Lots of things to look right. forward to. <laughs> Are you working from home? Is that how what's happening? Yeah, we've been working from home since March 2020. Yeah. yeah. So it's been yeah. a while. Yeah. 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 It's been okay. To be honest, there's nothing really to complain about. We have jobs, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I think like one of my good friends says, uh, it's the best pandemic we will ever live. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, have you been you, doing through it? Yeah, well, I've got my studios at home. I closed the right. studio on Belchas right. in July and uh, I've been working um, more or less at home uh, yeah. since, since then. In fact, yeah. I wanted to just preface our talk. And it's true. I have a 40 plus years of painting practice. Yeah. But I, I don't paint now. I'm, right. I'm really exclusively working on these collage boxes. So just so that that somehow enters the, the conversation, because otherwise it feels like I'm talking about myself as an artist in the past tense all the time. No, totally. No, And, and again, I think um, I, when I was doing my research, you know, I was looking at some of your artist talks. I saw you speaking a lot about your paintings, but obviously, yeah. I mean, I, I have a different mm -hmm. context of, of you because I also know you as um, through friends, right? Uh, as a professor. So there's, okay. there's a lot to unpack, I think. And uh, Okay. So lately you've been doing the, the boxes then, and uh, that's been your primary. Yeah, for five or six, for the last five or six years. Yeah. I mean, I used to, are we starting now? Is this it? Oh, this are is you... it. This is it. Oh, okay. All right. Um, my paintings were based on collages, yeah. you know, for, for many, many years. And um, then at a certain point, I wanted them to be more spatial. 
have a bit more depth to them. So I began to construct the collages in little foam core boxes. So theaters really. Um, and so I'd assemble the, the imagery in the shallow um, theatrical boxes. Then I'd photograph them yeah. and um, develop the paintings from, from those photographs. So the maquettes, um, what I now call collage boxes, um, started out as maquettes for my paintings, right. I guess about 2005 or something like that. So quite a while ago, about 15 years ago, yeah. I'm, I'm, I moved from doing flat collages to doing these three-dimensional collages. Right. And then created all these paintings that I showed in various spaces that had the drop shadows and a sense of illusion yeah. to them. And then um, I think that, I mean, I, I don't know how much you know about my background. I had polio when I was a kid. Right. And so I've, ne I've I, I don't have any leg muscles. I never had any muscles in my legs. Okay. So I walked with crutches and braces. And um, the reality of polio is that it affected it affected my whole body. So my arm muscles started to um, show signs of weakness. Um, hmm. I don't know how, how long ago, I suppose about 15 years ago or 20 years ago. Right. And so that sort of just kept going and I continued to try to paint and continue to do what I always did. And then it just became clear that that wasn't possible. Yeah. So, uh, so physically it was just not possible to continue with, I mean, painting is pretty exhausting right i mean it's a it's a physical activity really it's a physical activity and it's also repetitive activity mm -hmm. especially working on large scale yeah but it's also the way i was working with a lot of illusion i was blending the colors so there's a lot of black back and forth a lot of glazing a lot of different steps to to develop it that way and so you're constantly just moving your arms like yeah back and forth like that fluttering the brush and trying to get the 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 effect you want right and i was just at the end of the day i couldn't you know um you know pour myself a drink or you know undress or For so sure. it became kind of ridiculous at a certain point yeah, to yeah. continue so it took me a while because i mean most People and I suppose maybe more most artists are sort of butt-headed. They they kind of do what they do, and they 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 don't want to they don't want to give in to um, to weakness or to external forces. They just want to keep doing what they've always done. So that was that was took me a while to sort of let go. Yeah, I mean um, it's very evident, I think, because I mean your paintings from a period of time. Um, they're massive and they're pretty ambitious paintings as well, right? So um, was there ever a consideration you had in that sense of like, oh, this this is not going to stop me. I want to do this exactly and this is what I want to do, you know? Like kind of like that stubborn type of idea. Yeah, I mean, the scale is sometimes seems ridiculous to me, but right. I mean, the, the work I did that I ended up showing Mexico City, um, I started in, let's say, the mid-80s, 1985, yeah. um, and I was working on a... 10 foot high by 16, 18 foot across canvases. And I was, I was working with them on the floor and then I was doing stuff on the wall and I had ladders and sort of rough scaffolding and I had friends yeah. down the hall in the same building who'd help me sort of shift things up on the wall or put them down on the floor. And, right. and then I would just work for a few days in these different positions. Yeah. So um, I think there's a sense that for me anyway, uh, and maybe it, it has to do with what I was brought up with, the artwork of the 60s did start to become larger. Yeah. 
know, both abstract paintings and by people like Barnett Newman and Ellsworth Kelly, but also, you know, um, larger figurative painters. And someone like James Rosenquist was somebody that was a, was a key kind of influence for me. And he, he works on enormous. He was a billboard painter. So, I mean, right. I, I mean, this was part of what interested me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think I was also interested in a, a kind of a big theatrical, right. I was going to say sound. And I, and I think it's true that I wanted it to be like a performance when right. I had a show. So I'd go into a gallery and I'd unpack these big things, which were on rolls. Yeah. I had made very, very rough, not proper stretchers, but I made almost like theatrical flats. Yeah. yeah. Just sort of, you know, uh, used a cordless drill and put together with triangles, these big um, rough wooden flats. I, I'd staple the paintings on the canvases onto them and then with friends just lift them up and install them. And so it was like kind of like a circus, sure. like bringing the cir- circus to town. And I, I liked that aspect of working that scale mm-hmm. where you, then when you were finished, you rolled them up and, you know, deconstructed the the flats and um, put them away and waited for, for the next opportunity to, uh, to do it again. To to do it again. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I, I think that was, that was part of my motivation yeah. was to um, create this kind of carnivalesque or, or circus like atmosphere right. when I had an exhibition and, um, yeah, and that, that's the work from, I mean, a lot of work in the 80s, too, was very, very large. People yeah. like Bolke and Kiefer and a lot of the Europeans that I was looking at and Schnabel, Sally, all of the, the, the artists of my generation right. in the 1980s were going big and kind of spectacular. So um, I, I suppose I was, you know, working within that orbit and wanting to compete right. on that kind of con- that kind of a stage. Yeah, no, I mean, in the influences, right? I mean, if you're looking at that, you know, it's it's something that it's always perhaps happening in, in your mind saying like, that's how paintings look. That's what I want to do. Is that kind of what, what happened? Yeah, I mean, yeah. It, 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 it's what I ended up doing. Mm-hmm. And I mean, partly, I suppose I'm an A-type personality. I'm always right. pushing the envelope and pushing myself. But I, I, I wanted... Um, I think there was something else I wanted, and and I, we can talk a little bit about that. Maybe I wanted the shows to be entertaining, mm. you know. Mm-hmm. And entertainment in art culture is movies, theater. Yeah. It's not necessarily painting, right? Although I knew that there was this kind of entertainment aspect to a lot of what we now call pop art, and and to a lot of neo expressionist um, work also was. Um, had a kind of entertainment quality to it. Right. Um, even someone like Immendorf, he's he's really kind of super entertaining. Right. You know, the Cafe Deutschland, they're, they're political statements and they're, they, they do a lot of, they operate on a lot of different levels. But one of the things that they do do is that they entertain. You you laugh, you, you smile, you just kind of, you get hooked on the theatricality of it. So I, I was, I was keen to try to do that because um a lot of art is very serious and right. hermetic and, and you have to be, you know, there's a sense that you have to be some kind of really deeply learned person yeah. to get yeah, totally. certain concept, mm-hmm. conceptual and, and abstract stuff. And, mm-hmm. and A, I didn't think that was true. Right. I think all you, all you needed to be was to be open right. to, to, to the work, to really appreciate it. But I suppose on some level it was a bit of a, a reaction or a rebellion to the, 
to the seriousness of um, formal art and conceptual art that I I grew up with in the 1970s right. that I wanted my stuff to be. I mean, in a way, maybe I'll tell you a, a little anecdote. One of, I mean, I've had reviews and, you know, people have written about my stuff, mm-hmm. but the, the one that I liked the best was a show I had in a large, large space in Saint-Hyacinthe. And there was a review in Le Devoir right. um, news, newspaper by Jean Dumont. And my favorite part of it was that he said he'd never been to a show where the children oh. were, were walking around, looking at the art and talking amongst themselves, discussing it. Right. <laughs> so I like that aspect right. that, that these kids, you know, age eight, nine, ten, young teenagers, the kind of kids that parents drag along yeah, to yeah, openings yeah, all yeah, the time. Yeah. And they're usually bored right. and they're usually just you know, not wanting to be there. So he noticed that that wasn't happening at my show and that the kids actually were looking at the things. And I populated the paintings with birds and starry skies and, you know, sort of, I suppose, what you might call special effects, you know, um, that they, that they could appreciate. So that, that interested me. It still interests me to make things that are that are broadly accessible and and totally. and uh, broadly entertaining to to anybody, not just the kind of in crowd or the smart art art types. You know, I totally see that. However, when I think about you and and you know, as I said at the beginning, I've seen some of your artist talks. Obviously, you were a professor until recently, right? I mean, you mm-hmm. have all of that background in terms of the um, intellectualism of arts. You you know, you have that. However. What you're saying right now is that, you know, you are also interested in the accessibility of it in a very different manner, right? So in a way that perhaps you don't need all of that background to to enjoy it, to actually access it and to uh, communicate or confront with it. So that's a very interesting balance, I think. How do you manage that? Is that something that you have in mind every time that you're creating your, your pieces or that just happens because that's that's the work that you make? I mean, at this stage, it, it's uh, it's just what I do, yeah. you know, yeah. um, uh, but I think it probably goes back to to what inspired me in the first place, right. you know, um, which was art like I'm describing, art that was serious and important yeah. art. Um, um, I mentioned Rosenquist, but before Rosenquist, before I actually saw Rosenquist, I I was a teenager in London, Ontario. Right. In um, I, we lived, a family lived in London from like 1964 to. I think 1969 or 68. Right. And that's when I, um, I was a teenager and that's when I became interested in, in art. And it was through the London artists. And I don't know whether you know about them, but people like Greg Kernow and John Boyle and Kim Ondaatje, um, they were staying in London, working in London, yeah. which is a really a small kind of yeah. conservative town. Sure. It's not a, it's not a hip <laughs> kind of play, place to be necessarily but they were they were instrumental in mm. in something that we now call regionalism right. canadian religion we even call that group of artists london regionalists and they were making art about politics partly but they were making art about their families about their friends about their friendships uh-huh, uh-huh. about the houses they lived in the neighborhoods they lived in and they and they were doing it in an accessible way right bright colors kind of um i mean chambers was particularly important to me on one hand because he was 
what's the right word? Kind of trippy. There was a kind of, um, there was a kind of a other world, altered consciousness quality to chambers where he would take something simple, like two women having a cup of coffee on a couch and smoking a cigarette. And he'd turn it into this fantastic scene where it was magic and it was another world. So there was chambers on the one hand and then i suppose maybe more than greg who i i I met later on john boyle who did these plywood cutouts with bright bright colors yeah yeah yeah. and this very famous piece was a um a piece he did on on tom thompson but he combined you know this image of tom thompson in algonquin park with friends of his and you know circumstance of his (laughs) own life so he was taking um, art history um, and meshing it with his own daily life, his private life, right. and saying, you know, I, uh, I can do this. In fact, that's, that's how our mind works. We're, we're a mixture of ourselves and the lives we lead and the, 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 the families we have and the, and the houses we live in and all the things we have in our mind, sure. all the books we read, all the artists we admire, all the music we listen to. So, that was the beginning for me, and I, I've all, I don't think I've changed in my belief that that is um, it's possible to make an art that is both private and personal and speaks to who you are as an individual, but also has this public sense yeah. that 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 other people can can relate to. So I think it begins with with uh, with um, with those guys. Sure. And 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 I should mention Kim Ondaatje though she was the you know um, she was involved uh, um, um, as well. She painted more interiors, which uh, increasingly interests me now um, because I, I do a lot of that right now, uh, working on really quiet little interiors. Right. But at the time, I, I was more taken with those other two artists that I mentioned. And and, and David, so you're mentioning them uh, in the context of you growing up in in London, Ontario. I kept wondering, I mean, because, you know, I've read some of that, I think, in probably some reviews written about you or something. And I kept yeah. I kept wondering, like, were you aware, like, like the way that you are describing it now or, or this happened through the years that you started to think more about, you know, your influences growing up and all of that? Or what at the moment that you saw this as a teenager, all of this was happening in you that you were hyper aware, like these people are here. This is possible for me to actually access, you know, I mean, it. It was a kind of a, a, a eureka moment for right. me, I have to say. Yeah. It 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 is something that I can I can talk about um now in a very different way, sure. using different vocabulary, yeah. um s- seeing influences that these artists had that I might not have been aware of at the time. But um it was a eureka moment yeah. for me. And I think I think I connected it with to the music I was listening mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. and the kind of visual aesthetics let's call it counterculture aesthetics you know the stones the beatles the kind of posters from san francisco that kind of stuff and i think like the just to put it in historical perspective that the moment i'm looking at the chambers and the the boil Mm -hmm. in the london um library slash museum which is what it was it was it was a single single building um 
this is like when Sergeant Peppers comes out. Sure. And of course, it's cut out. Yeah. It's a it's it, the, the the cover is cut out. But I think I realized even then at 15, 16 years old, that it was a collage. I think everybody mm. realized that Sergeant Peppers, you know, for most people, it's the first collage album. Sure. La- layered, structured, a day in the life is like a lot of tape loops, a lot of splicing, a lot of overdubs. And I mean, I wasn't a genius and I wasn't a, you know, like clairvoyant. I think everybody read about that. You could read about that in Time magazine. It wasn't a secret. Right, right. So I I I think it just was like, okay, like, yeah, there's this, and then there's this. Right. And I can Connected. I can't do this, yeah, but I can yeah. do I can do this. <laughs> so it, it, in some ways, I, I I still feel when I'm working in the studio now that I'm I'm still working with those building blocks sure. that I appreci- appreciated um, way back when. Right, right. And in your family, are there any more artists? Well, my, my daughter studied theater, right. um, but not my my mom or dad. We didn't have any art, art in the house. Maybe one. My mom had a painting she did of the church that our family went to. Yeah. She did, I think it was more a one-off. I don't think she did another. Right. Um, it's nice. I have it in my studio. Sure. It's, a, it's a picture of the family family <laughs> church. Um, no, I was like most kids where you don't, I, we'd never been to a museum. Or, right. Um, I stumbled upon the, the 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 stuff in London because I went to the library right. to to get warm yeah. because it was the cold and I was downtown. <laughs> but um, I mean that's that's a no. great Genesis story, you know. It's <laughs> yeah. like I I picture, yeah. I picture the movie they'll make about you. You going up the stairs in the library and seeing this painting in front of you and saying like, "Whoa, this is what I'm gonna do." <laughs> well, I even I even remember that the Chambers painting was hanging in the stairwell. Oh, there you go. See? Yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's great. And so, uh, were you born there? No, we moved about, I don't know, we didn't move far, but we moved about um, six or seven times. Okay. Um, my mom recently died, so I was I calculated like how many different households did she have to establish right. for the kids, and it was six or seven. Oh, wow. Yeah. So we, we moved short distances, but in those days... That's what you do now. People would commute, but we—I mm-hmm. was born in Niagara on the Lake. We lived in St. Catharines, um, lived in Niagara Falls, yeah, yeah. lived in London, Vineland. I don't know whether you know. Yeah, yeah, well, I mean, you, I've, I've you live in Toronto, so yeah, so exactly. I've been exploring all you know around that. here, so I know all those towns for sure. <laughs> that's, that's the only yeah. thing we can do these days: just take a take a drive <laughs> all around there. <laughs> okay, and I, I think when we moved, when we lived in Niagara Falls, because after London we moved back to Niagara Falls. And I finished high school in Niagara Falls. I discovered the Albright Knox in right. Buffalo, and I, and I don't know whether you've ever been there. No. If you haven't, you when you can cross the border, yeah. it's one of the great museums in the United States, the Albright Knox. And that's where I first saw Rosenquist. Right. And that's where I first saw people like Jim Dine and and Marisol and and R.B. Kitai. They have a beautiful piece of Kitai's there. Um, and then they have, of course you know, uh, European, um, 19th century, early 20th century European modernism. So it's there that I began to, I suppose, see the London artist in a different sort of context in the context of international art. Yeah. And, um, 
it's still, I still have super fond memories of uh, visiting the Albright Knox and discovering art history, really. Sure. They have a Pollock, sure. Pollock to Kooning, everything. I mean, uh, it's an outstanding collection. Yeah, so, uh, and so at that, at that early age, you start to see all of this. Where do you consume this type of uh, maybe theory or concepts or, or something like that? What, what is that for you? Like, do you have any friends, any peers that are looking at the same thing as you are? But what is your surroundings like? Well, I think, you know, maybe it's because of my handicap, because right. I was on crutches mm -hmm. and braces. Mm -hmm. I, I wasn't, you know, going bowling or, right. or da dancing or, you know, uh, that kind of stuff. Who knows? Uh, maybe... I wouldn't be an artist if, if that wasn't the case. But I mean, I guess, I guess the sort of nerdy intellectual mm -hmm. in those days we called our, I think there was a term head. Right. You were ahead, ahead, which I, it implied you smoked grass or were involved in, in that kind of thing. But it also implied that you read books, uh -huh. you went to the theater, right. you watch Swedish movies, you, you know what, you know what I mean? You were interested in, in in that kind of a world yeah. so i had some friends i had a couple of friends that were um one of them studied theater at brock and st Catharines, and the other was really interested in avant-garde music mm -hmm. so i mean those were the my friends that i would explore this stuff with yeah um yeah it's interesting because i think there's a lot that goes into our lives that sometimes it gets a little bit um kind of like ignored, and, and it's all the surroundings, right? So for instance, anything that is happening in the culture at the moment where you're doing all of this, right? So there's a, a lot of things happening in the 60s, I believe, you know, that may had had some effect on you really being a lot more uh, open to receive all of this information and do all of these type of things. And do you think that your art has ever been shaped by that, by the culture, by the moment that we're going through politically, economically, and so on. Do you think that that's ever been a, a factor in your in your pursuings of, uh, of making art? I mean, I guess um, I've done very few. I've mm -hmm. done a, a, um, a few pieces that uh, um, had some kind of direct political um, narrative mm -hmm. to, to them. I did a couple of, of pieces um, to do with the student demonstrations in, yeah. in Montreal, right. um, where I had figures within my, my sort of still lives with a carré rouge, a red little right. band or a white one, or, you know, um, I've used sort of the, and sort of the, this, and, and again, it was kind of carnivalesque or, or circus-like those demonstrations every night. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I wanted to capture some of that right. mood in, right. in, in In those pieces, I did two pieces, one called Parade and another one called uh, Two Buddhas in a Cell, which was also about conspiracy, the notion of conspiracy. Right. Um, I, get, I, guess, I guess my feeling was that politics is the wrong word. Mm. I guess my feeling was that social change mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. can happen without it being... With, through art without the art being didactic yeah yeah mm -hmm. um i suppose that's that would be my position yeah so um s yeah so it, it's like it, 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 and again i go back to film or music yeah. or or painting if i think of the artists that i admire 
they're not overtly political, but they are humanist is such a funny word now. Everything's <laughs> been sort of, you know, it's all been deconstructed <laughs> and 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 re reevaluated. So to call yourself a humanist now is kind of, you know, a no-no and right. people don't do it. They're so careful with language. But let's just say human, mm-hmm. you know, that if I look at the art that I've always admired. For me, there's a sense of soul yeah. and you, humanity in it. And for me, if art has that, yeah. it's it's serving its purpose. It's 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 I moving things forward seems wrong to say mm-hmm. that. I don't mean to imply that, but um I did an interview with Robert Enright. Maybe you read it to prepare for this. Yeah. It was in Border Crossings, and he he made a joke when he when he when he introduced the interview because I at some point in the interview I said that when I'm looking at art or making art I want there to be love in it right and that when I, when I go into a museum mm-hmm. I look around the room and I look at things that attract me and I spend time with things more with one thing than another and and I suppose in the when I start to analyze why right. I feel like the piece that I'm attracted to has more of that in it. Mm. Mm-hmm. There is more, um, <laughs> it sounds ridiculous, <laughs> like more love per square inch in that painting than in that painting. Right. It, it's totally uh, subjective. Sure. I know? mean, it's your interpretation of the piece. I mean, that's, that's the value that you assign to it. However, I mean, maybe you as a also professional artist that understands, you know, deeply these things. I mean, you can see it, you know, it's like, oh, this piece, this piece has love. And so when you say love, you mean the way that is being conceived or, or you, what do you mean by love? Um, all of the, all of those things, yeah, sure. you know, like I said before, maybe love's the wrong word, mm-hmm. but maybe it's okay. It's not a bad word, no, you know. No. Um, that's, that's one okay. of, that's one of those words that hasn't been politicized yet. So use it. <laughs> <laughs> but like, like even something, someone like Mirandi, right. I mean, Mirandi, how apolitical can you be? And there's a lot of people want to write about him and see what was his position because he lived in Italy during fascism. Did he show in shows, group shows where the fascists were like, but I mean, clearly more or less right. Mirandi just made work in his bedroom. Right. Sure. You know, so, for me, those are works mm-hmm. that are beautifully, aesthetically, um, formally, they're just to die for as arrangements. Yeah. Just incredible arrangements. They just, they just, they rivet themselves mm-hmm. to the back of your head when you look at them. Mm-hmm. But I also feel that they, they're full of soul. Yeah. Just yeah. overflowing with soul. Now, why is that true? I don't know. Right. I can't, and I can't um, prove it. Right, right. Someone else could say, "Come on, it's pretty corny little, <laughs> little arrangements of, of uh, you know, c- ceramic pots and uh, and glassware, right?" Yeah, but, yeah. So I, I, I guess that's what interests me is that you, you. I don't know. I mean, to quote someone else, I mean, De Kooning said the thing he liked about art was that you never know, and no one will ever know. Right, right. You, you just never know, like. Yeah. He struggled for years to complete paintings, uh-huh. right? That was his story, uh-huh. that he could never finish a painting yeah. because the notion of whether it was right or wrong or as good as it could be, 
was he just kept pushing that, you know, and that's the wonderful thing about de Kooning yeah. is the, is the constant shifting. Um, but the idea that you'll never know, I like that. I think, sure. I think I like that about art. Sure. I mean, there's a lot of freedom in there for you as an artist and for the viewer. I think there's also a lot of freedom to, you know, it's like, this is what it is. And I feel like whenever you confront a, an art piece, It's not only you, it's all your backgrounds. It's all, all your stories, all your life, right? So everything that you bring to the front of that piece, it's what is going to reflect back at you. And plus what the artist is doing, the magic in there, right? So what you said, like all the love that you feel, all the whatever feeling that you have from it, then you get that mixed with your own thing, right? And so there's a lot yeah. of freedom in it. Yeah, yeah. I think even for artists who are more obviously politically engaged yeah. in the end, like let's say two artists that we know very well, like Nicolas Gagnier mm -hmm. and Raoul, mm -hmm. you know, they're, they're both engaged with politics and their work. Sure. But when they make a piece that, that moves you or moves me, yeah. it may not be that right. narrative right. that's making you love that totally. piece. Totally. It could be something else. Yeah. It could be a, a, an arrangement of colors, a degradé, a, a certain kind of, structuring of elements yeah. Yeah. that actually defy interpretation sure. you know and that's why you're attracted to it yeah so, yeah i mean I, i know that you've had a lot of influences in in some of your students as well um so for how long do you teach at concordia when do you start teaching i started in 1979 okay and 1980 was my first was that right after your mfa yeah yeah okay so you graduated from concordia as well right with your mfa yeah Mm -hmm. I'd done some teaching. I mean, I guess, again, because of my handicap, I couldn't do the typical jobs that people did to pay their way right. through school. A lot of my friends did tobacco picking or right. were waitresses or taxi drivers or whatever, you know. Yeah. So I taught before I came to Montreal to do mm. my MFA. I taught in Kingston. Okay. So I knew I knew I that would probably be what I would do, and I enjoyed it, and I turned out to be good at it. So right. I, I taught kids, I did children's classes, I, I did mentally challenged, you know, adults, I did, um, I worked in the prison system, I, right. I taught at prison for women, I taught at Collins Bay Penitentiary. I did summer teaching, you know, in inner city Toronto, kind of a youth, there was, there was money, I suppose, maybe there still is, yeah. you know, um, through the ministry um, uh, at the time, I forget what they were called, Ministry of Community Services or something. Mm -hmm. I did um, I did art workshops um, several summers. I worked in in the educational side of the Agnes Etherington Arts Center. So teaching or kind, a sort of teaching okay. was part of what I did before I, I did the MFA and before I, and I think that's probably why I got the part-time teaching at Concordia is that I, I actually had a resume of teaching, right. um, which was unusual mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. for someone so young. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One of the things that I was thinking about, and I think I sent it to you as a, as a question or a topic for the conversation, is that I always, you know, I always try to compare the moment that we're going through with, you know, in the past. I mean, like, I always wonder, you know, in terms of the political aspects of things and, and all of that. Um, you know, how was back then and how's now, but in terms of students, for instance, right? So you start teaching right after your MFA. So when you are done with your MFA, 
what do you want with that? What was the motivation to get an MFA? What do you expect to get, right? And and what I'm trying to ask a question for you right here is that versus what do you see in the recent past with students going through an MFA? Is that similar or because of the time has completely shifted the expectations? I mean, um, it's both similar and different, yeah. but I think probably the differences maybe outweigh the similarities at this point. Right. Um, I mean, what's similar is the reason I did an MFA is I wanted um, to go somewhere yeah, to yeah. change. I'm from Ontario, Ontario. I'm an Anglo from Ontario. It has a certain kind of culture to it. Right. I actually applied to the University of Baroda in India. Oh, okay. And, and I was accepted, but they were so slow oh, no. getting the response to me that I'd already decided to go to Concordia. <laughs> right. um, so, I mean, if they had actually... Well, I don't know. I mean, I got this envelope back from India and it had been stamped by probably 12 different people. The, the, the envelope was filthy. It had gone through so many levels of bureaucracy. Right. But by the time it got back to me oh, in Kingston, no. um, it was too late yeah. to go. Yeah. I often wonder what would have happened oh. if I went there. Because it was an important school, actually. Sure, sure. Um, but anyway... So Montreal was a change. It, yeah. was a, it, was a, it was a change of culture. It was a big city. Um, so I think that's still a lot of reason why people do go to do an MFA yeah. is to get out of their current surroundings, go someplace else, mm -hmm. but take with them the love of practice and their practice. Yeah. And once you install yourself in a studio, you, you know, You've got your thing, yeah. whether you're in Baroda, whether you're in Montreal, whether you're in Kingston. Right. So right. that's still a reason to to do an MFA. And I think people still do that. Um, I don't think people thought the kind of MFA as a business. Yeah. I don't don't think people were aware of that then. I have uh -huh. to be, I have to say. Um, you know, of course there were art schools in England. If I read books, I knew you know, who went to the Slade, who went to the Royal College, yeah. all that kind of stuff. Yeah. You know, I could read a book on Hockney or Kitai and know where they went to school, right? And there's two levels of art schools in England. Sure. But nobody talked about goldsmiths or anything. There wasn't any of that or Columbia or Yale or, you know, at least not in my, mm -hmm. you know, um, community. Yeah. And I think that's much more, I think, beginning in the late 90s, Probably with the rise of the young British artists, yeah, I, I think I would I would actually locate it then yeah. in the early '90s. People started to see these artists, you know, from Goldsmith. Yeah, uh, I think that's where they were, um, creating shows, doing things, and actually getting themselves on an international map. Right at that at that point. So, I think at that point, um, serious. Um, Art students began to strategically That's right. think about it. That's think right. about MFAs, yeah, yeah, and to work towards scholarships, to work towards um, getting into these prestigious places, which which can pay off for people. You know, you meet a whole other, um, yeah, a whole other set of circumstances. There's a lot more information flowing. And there's also New York happening, right? In the 80s and 90s, that everybody understands as the boom of the contemporary arts, that I think it was 
you know, it was made to be aware worldwide that that was happening. So I think, you know, that's probably what contributes to the quote unquote professionalization of what is to be an artist, right? Kind of like accessing certain things in the market. Yeah, I think we've been talking about the MFA, which I think in the early 90s exploded in terms of consciousness. But the art market is a whole other story. Right. And I think right. I think through the late 60s, 70s, I mean, in the 70s, everybody read Art Forum. It was simpler on some level. Mm -hmm. There was a single magazine right. that everybody read right. in 1970, and it was Art Forum. Yeah. Then in the 1980s, there were a couple of magazines, you know, yeah. Art in America and Flash Art from Europe became the kind of the the magazines that focused on the new figuration, the return to figuration. Yeah. Whereas Art Forum was much more about late modernist conceptualism and that kind of thing. So, in a funny way, things were things were simpler in terms yeah. of like if you just read the letters to the editor in Art Forum in the 1970s, and that would be an education in itself right. to teach an art history class and have the students simply read the letters to the editor in Art Forum or later in Art in America. Yeah. So what would happen would be someone would write an, an, an article on, let's say, Donald Judd or, mm -hmm. or you know, I don't know, Mary Miss or yeah. Alice Acott or something like that. Then the next month you'd get the issue and someone would respond. Oh, Sometimes right. the artist would respond. <laughs> the artist would write and say to the writer, you're full of shit. Yeah. You know what you're talking about. Yeah. So if you read that magazine every month you felt you were part of something sure, you felt sure. you were part of you know i i think one of the issues now is the proliferation that's right of information yeah like like what we're doing yeah uh, but but um online stuff galleries where you don't even have to go to the show anymore yeah. you can just walk right through you can do a 360 yeah. tour yeah. of most big galleries sure. um it's it's just different yeah i mean so that's when i say things are different um in mfas and different in the art world a lot of it has to do with with scale sure it's it's, it's huge yeah um i mean since i graduated with my mfa imagine the tens of thousands maybe hundreds of thousands of mfa graduates there have been right all over the world yeah sure um yeah. And New York, which was the center, even though we had Montreal and Toronto mm -hmm. and Vancouver mm -hmm. and Los Angeles, now it's like, you know, Southeast Asia, oh, sure. um, China, uh, South Africa, um, you know, Mexico City, all of that. you know, all, yeah. all of that. Yeah. Yeah. And to be aware of all of that as a practicing artist I can't imagine it. It's a full time I mean, I job. I, I don't even try. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I, I'm kind of aware enough. I think also the the aesthetic discussions and arguments yeah. are are much more complex now. Sure. At the time when I was coming of age, a lot of it revolved around let's call it late modernism. Yeah. yeah. You know, mm -hmm. and let's let's just say that you know. You could argue people for October magazine, the, those Hal Foster, those, those sorts of writers, Rosalind Krauss, would argue that minimalism was probably the last mm. new mm -hmm. art form. Right. And now and everything since, is just like a recycling. Then it, it, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That it's really been mannerism mm -hmm. um, ever since. Now, I'd probably argue that that, you know, 
the new figuration of the late 70s and 80s, which they rejected, was something new. It was different. Right. It was not just a recycling of uh, of um, of European modernist figuration. Right. You know, um, yeah. but but there is some truth to the fact that um, art of the last, my God, 40 or 50 years is in some sense, um, broadly speaking, mannerist. Right. Playing with languages that have, uh, that, that already existed. Sure. You know, how, how you tweak them, how you make them your own, yeah. um, is, is of course, paramount importance you know for sure. um, to that point how important is to be for an artist these days how important is to be like super aware of what are those all of those movements in art history um for them not to fall into one of those i don't know how to call them like boxes is that important for you or that's kind of like well if it happens that that's you that's what you produce right well i think the work i think the work the strength of the work is still what it's about right you know um, face to face with a painting or a sculpture or a film or a video, um, does it kind of break through, yeah. you know, yeah. and establish itself as worth mm. looking at mm. and, and worth your time. Right. Standing alone, like by itself. Y yeah. And there's plenty of, like, I don't want to sound like an old fogey who's saying, oh, well, it's all just, you know, it's just all game playing now. I, I think you could argue that it's always been to some extent right. playing with styles, right. you know, in the 19th century and early 20th century. But when something breaks through and, and, and establishes itself as I suppose, worthy, yeah. you know, yeah. of your attention, then it's, it's, it's pretty special. It's special. And that, that continues to happen. Right. There's lots of art that does that. And, um, that's why you do what you do. And that's what, why I keep trying to make things, you know, <laughs> because you keep, you, you think that you can do that, right? Right. You, you want to show work like that. I want to make work like that. Yeah. And, um, all these individuals continue to do that, which is, which is wonderful, you know? Um, so to call things manner is, I hope you don't feel like I'm putting things down. I'm not, my work is mannered for sure. Right. You know, It's it's um, it's using um, pre-existing languages, but at the same time, as trying to establish a unique voice. Your own, your own within, voice. With, yeah, exactly. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I've seen you yourself describe your work uh, in terms of uh, a combination between the 19th and 20th century, right? So 19th symbolism and 20th century uh, metaphysical type of you know work. Is that how you still describe your output? Well, I guess I bring those two up: yeah. the 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 19th century symbolist work and metaphysical painting, maybe because they're less well known. I think the obvious point of point of contact for my work, people would call pop. Mm. But I mean, I think it isn't. I would the term pop. I don't hate, or I think it's useful to some extent. But I think what really it is um, is photo-based figuration right i mean that's what i would call it and the the moment i'm describing where i'm looking at chambers and i'm looking at rosenquist uh -huh. and i'm looking at john boyle and i'm looking at marisol i'm looking at an uh, uh, you know warhol what we're seeing for the first time not the first time because 
you know, the, the the collage artists in Russia, the Russian constructivists, and the, the surrealists to some extent used it. But I think starting in the 60s, you get what is really prevalent now, which is photo-based figuration. Right. Right. How many people work figuratively now based on observation? Very few. You know, I only know two. Right. I know lots of artists, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. But I only know two. Mm-hmm. that work from direct observation. Yeah. Um, yeah. So the photograph has become this tool for artists, um, especially if they're interested in working from the things in the world, Yeah. whether it's a figure or whether it's a person or whether it's an object. Yeah. And so it really begins in many ways, you know, as we know it at that, at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's gone through so many iterations and so many different levels that some people can be photo based, yeah. but end up looking as though they're not. Right. What do you think is the, the source of that? If I think about it, it could be many things. So one of them would be to make decisions and then stick to them, right? So that you're not continuing to change the visuals, right? Um, the other thing would be, you know, a guide, to say like this, this is what's gonna be. So what what was that for you to decide that to, to work that way? I, it just felt natural to me. Yeah. It, I mean, I think, I mean, I go back to let's say the Sgt. Pepper's album cover. Mm-hmm. It felt natural that that is the kind of image right, you make right, at this moment right. in history. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas I could look at a Degas, or and that's made sense as the way that you made an image at that moment in history. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if you look at Sargent or Degas, and I mean, I I think it's as simple as that. Sure. It felt, it seems weird to say it felt natural because it isn't really natural, right. it's artificial, yes, right? Yes. But the world as an artificial construct in some ways feels natural. Mm-hmm. And it felt natural mm-hmm. to me when I was 16. Yeah. It still feels natural for me even though sometimes it creeps me out that I think that way, <laughs> right. I still think that way, yeah, you know? Yeah, yeah. No, um, I mean, that makes sense, though. I mean, they, you know, is that thing that they say in sports. Like, there's only so much that you can teach somebody until they can just do the thing that they do, you know, by themselves. Like, there's only so much that you can learn a technique until you explode with it. I think it's the same thing with artists. I mean, like, you know, there's so many things that you can actually learn by, you know, the technique or this and that, but from there on, what you produce is completely out of, you know, any books or anything that you can imagine. It's just whatever is in you, whatever you produce. And like you say, it's like natural. Mm-hmm. It's natural, but it's also uh, it's something else is occurring to me as you talk, as you're speaking. It, it, it's people will adopt um, a language that works for them, yes. that suits them. Mm-hmm. And um but they will argue with themselves too <laughs> about that language, right? right. Um, asking themselves if it's appropriate, asking themselves mm-hmm. if it's good enough. Mm-hmm. An interesting example is an artist that I really admire is Arby Kitai, mm-hmm. who is one of those artists that I talked about, who was an early proponent of photo-based figuration and a collage aesthetic. And he brought all kinds of things into it, history, especially European history, especially the diaspora, especially the European di- the Jewish diaspora in, in, in Europe yeah. um, in the 30s, the 40s, and after the Second World War. But he quarreled with himself, mm-hmm. you know, and 
starting in, he was very successful with this stuff, starting, I guess, in the late 60s, early 70s, he began to then work from observation. Yeah. A lot of drawing. Yeah. A lot of drawing from observation, a lot of pastel, a lot of that stuff. And then he did, in the end, go back to a kind of invented figuration. Mm -hmm. His last paintings are very rough. You know, there's a very famous self-portrait of him picking his nose (laughs) that looks like it was done by a a 13-year-old, you know? So I like artists like that who quarrel with themselves. They say, I want to paint the world. I want to paint... I want to paint humanity in as big a sense as I possibly can. Mm -hmm. Initially, he felt the way to do that was to use photography. He did a lot of photo silkscreen, et cetera, et cetera. Then he rejected that and worked from observation for a period of time. Yeah, yeah. Then he he ends his career Mm -hmm. with roughly 15 years of, let's call it a punk. Yeah. You know, more like Nicole Eisen, Eisenman, that kind of aesthetic right. in late in late Kitai, right. a kind of a crude crudeness. You know, so I do admire artists that that chart a path, yeah. but then question that path and and question it publicly. I mean, Gustin's probably the biggest example, sure. and he's much much discussed recently you know, um, because of the controversy of his show. And he was a big influence for artists of my generation. But he's someone who is all about arguing with themselves. What is the controversy of the show? I'm not aware. Oh, there was a big retrospective that was going to open um, um, in Washington at the National Gallery. It was going to go to the Tate in London, to Boston, to Houston. The catalog was published. It was about to open. Yeah. And they, they... the opening was delayed because of COVID, but then they, they I don't even know where they, they might have even got to the point of hanging the show in Washington. I don't know. Right. But then they had a press conference where they 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 canceled the show oh. and delayed the show because Gustin, part of Gustin's iconography is a Ku Klux Klan oh, sure. hooded, hooded character, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which he uses as a kind of a this evil okay. figure, this kind of bumbling kind of represents kind of yeah. lots of things, yeah. but including white supremacy. And they were afraid that it was going to be misinterpreted yeah. and they, they felt they needed to contextualize yeah. it. And so they just pulled the plug on the show. I see. I see. That's another change, certainly from, from the, when I was coming of age as an artist and there was a, the idea was to sort of just say whatever, however kind of crazy and mm-hmm. weird and mm-hmm. you know odd it might sound, right? It was free. So, it was free game. Yeah, kind of. In fact, it was sort of people like Lenny Bruce or Richard Pryor or whatever. Mm-hmm. I mean, they, they, it wasn't just in the arts; it was in stand-up comedy, comedy. Yeah. it was in film, it was in it was everywhere. Mm-hmm. How do we honor that? Oh, Gustin, yes. the idea of charting a course for yourself. But then arguing with yourself, mm-hmm. I think, is really interesting in an artist. Yeah. And 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 watching that happen, you know, is fascinating mm-hmm. to see how an artist negotiates yeah. th- these questions. So branching out from that and, and talk about the Mexican uh, show, the, me- okay. the, the show that you had at the Museum of uh, Modern Art Museum. Yeah. So that, yeah. that happened early 90s, right? 
Yeah. And I feel like yeah. in, in a lot of the um, the material that I revised in preparation for the interview, um, you know, it, it seems to be like a central point for you. And I, I wanted to just explore why, you know, it's a, it, was, was it a, a specific moment of your career or, you know, if there was a pivotal moment there for you or something? Um, well, yeah, it was. I mean, it's probably the, the, the biggest venue right. that I've shown at right. for sure. Mm -hmm. um, and it, I mean, I, I was showing basically starting in like the late seventies, I was showing in artist run spaces, yeah. you know, yeah. um, in Toronto, in, 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 in Montreal, I was included in kind of group shows kind of nationally that had to do with, you know, new figuration in the early, early mid, mid eighties. Yeah. So, I mean, I was no, you know, I don't even, I don't, think I had gallery representation when I did the show in Mexico. Right. I, I have shown in, I had shown in some commercial galleries yeah. in the seventies and eighties in Toronto and, and in Montreal, but in the mid eighties and late eighties, I wasn't. Um, and the, the Mexican show was strange. I mean, I, I um, the work was out and being shown, but yeah. locally I was, um, I've been to Mexico a few times okay. And um, I went to Oaxaca yeah. for a couple of weeks with my my wife, and i i dropped a I dropped an application off at the Museum uh -huh. of Modern Art in Mexico City, <laughs> and i I gave it a spin. You know, my spin was that they were mural size mm -hmm. paintings, that they were the scale of murals, like. And so the Mexican mural tradition, yeah, the, there's the a sense strong of, tradition of that working mm -hmm. on a large. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, surface with 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 figures, the kind of carnivalesque or circus-like atmosphere, yeah. and which I termed, you know, magic realism, yeah. which also has a, yeah. a Latin kind of a American. Latin American. Mm -hmm. There's a certain currency mm -hmm. both in the literature of Latin America and in the in the visual arts in Latin America. So I I, I wrote something and sent them a package, and to my surprise i guess maybe and happiness they they said okay let's do it Great. um at the same time they had an, another canadian artist roughly at the same time apply to show there yeah um his name is john hall he's a he he lived part-time in mexico and right. he was doing photorealist paintings of pinatas yeah. and a kind of you know the kind of uh Momento Mori, the sort of death imagery from 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 Mexico, yeah, you know, yeah. the the candies, the plaster sculptures, all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. So he, the curator had these two proposals on her desk from Canada, Canadian artists who they found interesting. So they gave us both a show. They were like two solo shows, but I think from the context of the museum, they were showing these two Canadians. Yeah, yeah. and it was a huge space, gigantic. Yeah. I. I was able to show 15 or 16 of these yeah. 10 foot by 16 foot paintings. Wow. Yeah, those are massive. Um, so for me, it was like a really crowning achievement sure. for that body of work mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. to show it in Mexico City. What, what became interesting, you know, when I started to read the press, you know, because Mexico City had at that time probably had like, 10 daily newspapers sure. it's a huge it's a huge it's a huge <laughs> city, city right? yeah 
<laughs> so I'd, I'd come in the day after the opening and the, you know, the, the press agent for the museum just sat me down and gave me a pile of newspapers right. to look at. Right. You know, and I realized that the show that John and I had or the work that we presented was the first time that they had made work that they were calling postmodern. They were calling Postmodernisto or whatever. Right, I don't know what right, it is in right, Spanish. Right, yeah. How would you say postmodern in Spanish? Postmodernismo. There you go. Mm -hmm. So they kept saying that in all these mm -hmm. reviews. So we were on some level um, introducing something yeah. to um, the the scene, I guess, the museum anyway. Yeah. Um, uh, who knows what was going on in the commercial galleries right, in Mexico right. City in uh, in the late 80s, early 90s. But so... It was fun on that level, too. Sure. It felt people were enthusiastic. Um, children liked it. I remember they, they they told me, all the kids, all the children's groups that came through yeah. really had fun with the work. So, yeah, it was a big deal for me. Yeah. I mean, it was. it's a bit of an, uh, in some level, in terms of a museum <laughs> retrospective, it's a bit of a one-off. I mean, that right. may be it for me. Right. I, I, I uh, maybe I peaked really early. Um so that's a long time ago. That's 30 years ago. Now. Right, right. So, yeah. but yeah, it was it was important for me. Sure. This is a question I, I usually do have for painters, and I, I like to, to hear your thoughts as well. So there's that relationship you have with your work, planning on creating this piece or whatnot, right? So some people use Photoshop, you use actually photographies. And so there's that relationship with your work in the planning phase and then in the actual execution, right? So there's the painting and then you're doing it. Or now mm -hmm. your boxes, right? So you're also making it. There's the relationship with maybe the museum that you're going to work with or the gallery or any space, right? There's a, the yeah. relationship with the curator. I wonder always what is in your mind the relationship with the viewer, you know? Do you have ever that in mind when you are creating these pieces? I think I probably, um, yeah, they're in my, they're in my mind. Yeah. Um, All of those things you mentioned are also there. I mean, if you know you're going to be showing, like right now, I know I'm going to be showing at Nicolas Rabel mm -hmm. in November. So mm -hmm. I have that space in my mind. In Mexico City, I had a space, um, all these different, like at Antoine's or at Joyce's, yeah. Yeah. all these different places I've shown. Yeah. I, I know the layout of the gallery and what it will accommodate. So you are, to some extent, working with that in mind. Yeah. Um, You're also following just threads of thoughts, things that 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 interest you, yeah. um, things that you feel have always interested you, but you didn't really pull off in something that you might want to bring back out yeah. and try again. Yeah, yeah I mean, it, it's hard to say. I mean, like I don't have, um, I don't usually have a single thematic for mm -hmm. an exhibition, mm -hmm. um, although a thematic will sometimes emerge right. um, over the course of, let's say, the 12 months. Typically, you're working 12 to 16 months, maybe 18 months between shows. Mm -hmm. So you have mm -hmm. you have a show, then a year and a half later, you'll have another show. That's typically the rhythm for an artist who has got representation. Yeah. So in that 12, 18 months, the great thing is that you, you can just let things happen for a while. Right. And see right. what it look what it looks like. Yeah. And then from that thing, you make other things. Mm -hmm. So, 
I mean, clearly with COVID, you know, that's going to influence what you do. So, I mean, I made about 30 really small little interiors with no people in them, just little interiors with books and records and chairs and confined spaces. Some of them are in basements with little basement windows, you know, cheap linoleum floor, colored walls. Yeah posters on the wall little kind of like the spaces where i as a teenager grew up reading novels um looking at movies on tv um, making my initial artworks down in the basement at my parents house so i was trying to do works that were about the the um these spaces that we create for ourselves like i'm sure your office or the the little corner of your room where you have your postcards and your books and, you know, all that stuff. Everybody's got one. Sometimes it's in front of a computer now. But uh, I did a bunch of those. So that was just one thing led to another. Um, And then I did some, some single figures, just some standing head to toe figures. Um, And so that occupied me for about eight eight months or so. Sure. I did about thirty of the little rooms, and I did about maybe twelve or fifteen of the standing figures. Yeah. Um, so I'm just explaining. That's one body of work, sure. right? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. each of the bodies of work I've done in my career, they happen very much like that. Yeah. The only difference is that that when I painted. I couldn't make 30 of anything. Mm. I would only make mm-hmm. maybe a dozen paintings, mm-hmm. a painting a month, whereas I can make, I don't know, three or four or five boxes a month. So yeah. I can move more quickly. Yeah. But but my working method's the same. I, I just, thematics develop as I work. And then I say, oh, okay, now I've got 25 or 30 of these little rooms, yes. which represent something quite specific. Right. In those boxes, um, the objects that you add in those boxes are not always flush to the to the walls of the box, right? They they sometimes have some uh, uh, different distance between the front and the back of the of the box, correct? I think I've seen some of your work of that. Yeah, they're yeah. two inches deep yeah. usually. Mm-hmm. So, and they're they're perspectival. They the, yeah. the, the the floor ramps up exactly, and the and the ceilings ramp down, down yeah. and the sides of the walls come in. So basically, you've got a flat wall. Yeah. And then you've got beveled yep. sidewalls and you've got a beveled ceiling right. and a beveled floor. Right. Then then in there, I can put a window, yeah. I can put a table, yeah. I can put a wheelchair, I can put, you know, a record player. Sure. Sure. I mean, I've lately been doing some more three-dimensional things like a speaker that I actually make the box for right. the speaker. Right. So there it's got, and then I put books on top of the, the speaker. I make little books and I'll put them on top of the speaker to, cause the way we do the way, the way, well, that's what my place looks like now. I got, <laughs> I've got books on top of speakers and stuff. It, so, it sounds like it's almost like sculptures too, really. I don't, I don't know. I call them collage boxes. I mean, the art that was, in favor in the 70s, especially the mid late 70s and early 80s, when I went to New York, was installation art. Yeah. You know, yeah. And um, I've always liked it, you know, 
performance and installation art. So people like Reed Morton, Laurie Anderson, you know, that kind of stuff, right. you know. Um, and even if we think of someone like Joseph Boyce, there's like a, an accumulation of stuff, of theatrical elements that come with performance or installation. So, I mean, these are like little installations, yeah. you know, on some level. Yeah. And so were some of my paintings. I was conscious when I was making those paintings mm-hmm. of, you know, image-based theater. That's right. People like Robert Wilson or people like Robert Lepage. I mean, I I, I am conscious that that even though you're making a tiny little collage, it is in some ways has similarities to, let's say, a set design or a, a theatrical performance yeah. or, or an installation. Yeah. So. I wouldn't use the term sculpture, but they're they're like miniature installations, mm-hmm. I guess. Mm-hmm. No, that makes sense. That makes sense. I've heard you talk about how important it, it was for you at the beginning when you started to develop this uh, work, um, the negative space and the shadows behind it. And so when I think of your boxes, that happens naturally, right? I mean, like, <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah. You know, you, you're still maintaining that... Um, what we were calling before the nature of your production, right? So I think that's pretty that's pretty nice. It's true that the the shadows and um, I think you're referring to sometimes when I talk, I talk about the fourth dimension right. and 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 metaphysical space right. and the idea of let someone like De Chirico or Mirandi or Max Beckman, they'll they'll position something um, so that it's unclear what's in front of what. And it creates a kind of a, a tension in in the mind of the viewer, and I, I love I love that stuff. Yeah, yeah. It's true that with the boxes, that that kind of thing won't happen, right? Because they're they're they they're real things with real shadows, and and if and if you move your head this way or that, they'll, they'll change slightly. Not not a lot, but they'll change slightly. Yeah, for um, sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I. I yeah, they're different. I I I I, uh, I still appreciate that fourth dimensional space in a painting. The but um, the, the these are different. These are different. They don't they don't do that. But I hope they do. Um, they do other things in terms of. I suppose the confusion in the mind, maybe looking at the boxes, is especially photographs of the boxes is trying to figure out what exactly are you looking at, yeah, you know? Yeah, for sure. And and David, I know that, um, you know, in Montreal, when I was still in Montreal, I, I used to bump into you in openings a lot of the times, right? So are you missing that through COVID? What's <laughs> happening? <laughs> I've started to go out. Yeah. I mean, I've started to go out to shows. Um, the, when the museums open, I, I went. Yeah. I went to, Recently. to see, uh, yeah, I saw Manuel Matthews show before right. it closed yeah. at yeah. the Museum of Fine Arts. And I I saw the, the, the show that um, um, that Marc and Francois put together at the Musée d'Alcantaparais yeah. um, recently. I, I, I can't remember the title. It's a very long kind of complicated title um i saw janet's show recently i I, i've been you know um yeah i've been out and about a bit oh that's good i mean you see it's it's totally a different story here everything is nothing is open here so that's why i'm still in the mindset of the lockdown so yeah montreal seems to be a lot more forward thinking in terms of uh opening up Uh, i know that yeah there are some openings happening even tonight at Claric, for instance and so yeah yeah, that, that sounds great I hope that uh, you know things get back to normal and 
hopefully, uh, you know, we get to see the community sometime soon as well. Yeah, and I'd like if I'm ever in Toronto to come oh, by and see your 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 new space. Hundred percent, and uh, you you're always welcome here. I, I I always appreciate when you pass by the old tap in Montreal. So uh, that was always very fun. Yeah, yeah, it was fun. I used to <laughs> on the way back from the studio, That's I could right. take that that route to go home. That's right. That's right. No, but you know what? I appreciate very much you making time to do this. Um, this is uh, this is gonna be one of those um, you know, big big episodes for the podcast. This is one that that I had in my in my books as a must. So I'm really happy that we got to chat. Well, nice to talk to you again. Thank you so much for doing this. Pleasure. Okay, so that was my conversation with artist David Elliott. I'm really grateful to have had the opportunity to chat with him, and uh, I really enjoyed this. Original music that you heard in this podcast was created by Arcadio Lance, and he is also in charge of all the post-production in terms of audio. Um, he's a pro, so if there's anybody out there who is in need of some audio solutions, you should reach out to me or directly to Arcadio. Our contact emails um, are in the website, intothispodcast.com, and you can find a lot more information there as well. Visual design was done by the always great Victor Garibay. And uh, I'm the host, Marks, and we'll see you soon with another episode of Into This. In the meanwhile, enjoy the summer and take it easy. All right. Thanks for listening. Cheers.